Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield. I hope you had a wonderful and healthy holiday season and a great start to the new year. We've got a lot of really exciting episodes coming up over the next few weeks, from sea turtles to residency programs to aquaculture to dolphins. And to kick off our 2021 season, this week I'll be speaking with Dr. Vanessa Freva-Hord, a veterinarian and marine mammal specialist. Hi, Vanessa. Thank you so much for being on Aquadox today. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm really excited to be here, too. So let's just start with a general overview of what led you to where you are today. Sure. Well, I am that stereotypic kid that when I was six, I swam with dolphins. I pretty much fell in love with dolphins. I really liked biology, too. So I kind of through high school knew that I wanted more to pursue the veterinary route. I, I actually played water polo. And so I went to George Washington University to play water polo more than anything. They're not very veterinary related or aquatic. I went to the University of Maryland to get some of my animal science and all that. And then I got into Western University of Health Sciences in California. And so that's what brought me out to California for veterinary school. And then I started volunteering with the Stranding Network. So with stranded, mostly sea lions, harbor seals, and elephant seals, I realized how fun and exciting that is and how much we have to give back there. And so after veterinary school, I did a small animal internship because I think it's really important to get good at just medicine period. And then I went up to the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalito and did a two-year internship. And that's what really got me into sea lion research. And then I worked at Six Flags Discovery Kingdom for seven years. And I, I got to do my dolphin medicine I'd always wanted to do and do a lot of cool research there. But I, I kept working at the Mammal Center on my day off and wanted to continue pursuing research with pinnipeds in some way and help out. I really got interested in the big picture. It's like once I work with dolphins, I'm like, okay, I'm here. This is great. I worked on my medicine, but there's always more we can learn, more they can give back to the community, more than just teaching the guests that come in. There's, there's so much more they can participate in that can help other animals and wild animals in the future. And so here we are. I know we're going to talk about some of the research that I'm really passionate about. And I love the way that you refer to research as a means of engaging with a broader community, because I don't think everyone always recognizes that, but that's really what it comes down to. Right. It definitely, when animals are under human care, there's got to be more to help out those wild animals. They're there for more than entertainment. That's not why they're there. They're there to learn and influence people. And they do a really good job of doing that. Everybody wants to see a dolphin, meet it. How can we help? Exactly. Those ambassador animals that led you to pursuing your career and led me to pursuing mine. So since you mentioned it, let's get right into it. So you recently published a paper talking about in utero exposure to domoic acid in sea lions. So I'd love to talk a little bit about domoic acid, sea lions, what it does to them, what it is. Right, of course. So domoic acid itself is a neurotoxin. And so it's created by a diatom. So it's this little unicellular organism in the top layer of the ocean that can create this toxin called domoic acid. And so what ends up happening is it can get bioaccumulated. So the little fish eat the diatom, the bigger fish eat that. That toxin keeps concentrating and increasing in each of the prey animals that eat the little animals. And so sea lions end up 
getting a ton of this toxin, when there is a bloom, they are very likely to get exposed. Many other marine mammals are affected by this on the West Coast. I don't want anyone to think that it's just sea lions, but there was an unusual mortality event that happened in 1998. And Francis Gullen was at the Mammal Center at that time. And it was just adult female sea lions seizuring left and right, you know, coming in at the 10, 20 a day, you know, and they didn't know what was going on. What is causing these seizures, you know, and then through her research, they found out that it was this demoic acid in their system. And what's difficult about it is it's water soluble. So it leaves the body pretty quickly. So you have to make sure you get samples right away. So it can be a little tricky to diagnose. And so what's really important about this toxin too, is that it can affect humans. So it all first came about was there was um, in Prince Edward Island, there was a dinner party in the early 80s and someone served up a bunch of mussels and they had this demoic acid in it. And a lot of people at the dinner party got really sick GI signs, but then they got amnesia after. And so that's where this toxin came up, at least as far as humans. And so... As more research was done, you know, sea lions continue to come in through the, the late 90s into 2000, even into today. And so what was found out was that with acute exposure, it'll cause seizures in these sea lions and, and not necessarily permanent brain damage. But as they get exposed subsequent times, it causes hippocampal atrophy. And then further studies showed that these guys, when they have hippocampal atrophy, they don't know where they are. They don't know their normal migratory patterns. The mothers, they'll just have a baby and leave it. A lot of times the adult females come in because during their third trimester of pregnancy in the springtime, they'll gorge on these herring. And then the herring most likely have the toxin and then they'll come in exposed. What this toxin also does, it goes into the amniotic fluid. These babies are bathed in the demoic acid the whole rest of the pregnancy. And then when they come out, you know, as far as we know, they seem pretty normal. The mom doesn't want to take care of them. So that's a very typical sign you'd see in a straining situation is that the mom just leaves the baby. And then we kind of assume there was demoic acid involved. So sea lions, just a little backstory of the pinnipeds, they actually require a lot of mothering. So they're with their moms six months to a year and they're nursed that whole time. This is very different from harbor seals and elephant seals. They only nurse for a month. They get all the nutrients they need and their mom is like, bye, see you later. But sea lions really depend on that mothering. So when a baby, a neonatal sea lion comes in, they have to basically be put on a bottle, you know, and then they're imprinting on humans. And so it's not a scenario where we can release that pup because of the imprinting. So what happened was probably in the mid to late 2000s, a lot of these neonatal sea lions were placed in aquariums and zoos, and we were hoping they'd have great results. Everybody wanted a baby sea lion, let's do it, you know, but then unfortunately, a lot of these guys, it seems like when they get into puberty, they hit puberty, they may start to have seizures, they may have sudden death, and it could be because of something going on in the adrenal gland. Would you be able to connect those dots a little bit more and, and explain like why it's causing these seizures, how it's doing that? Sure. So what I didn't go into was that this neurotoxin does bind to glutamate receptors. And so glutamate receptors are neurotransmitters that are in your brain. They're also in your heart. And so when the toxin connects to the neurotransmitter, it doesn't let go. So it basically forces it to continue to fire until it basically atrophies down. And that's where we end up with this hippocampal atrophy. And oftentimes it's even only on one side. Interestingly, this mirrors what happens with a type of condition in humans. 
where they'll get unilateral hippocampal atrophy, but they'll get this type of epilepsy from hippocampal damage. And so it's really interesting if we can figure out how to fix it in sea lions, could we help the humans? So there's all this whole other human side to it. And what I hadn't touched on yet was that in adult animals in general, when they come into this draining center, they're seizing, they're having neurologic signs. There was a demoic acid bloom in the ocean. We can assume they just got exposed. The difficult part is, do the animals have the chronic damage or not? Because we know that if they do, they aren't the best candidates for release. But what's difficult is the gold standard for seeing this damage would be an MRI, so magnetic resonance imaging. So this is a type of diagnostic where basically it's a big magnet that's a circle. And, and what it does is it uses the magnet along with radio waves and a computer to create an image of soft tissue structures within the body. And so that's how we're able to see a 3D image of the brain and be able to tell from the anatomy that the hippocampus is atrophied. As you can imagine, it's a lot to do an MRI and a sea line. So what we, we have to do is have them under general anesthesia because you know when we started with all this, it was wild animals that you can't necessarily train to, to lay in an MRI or ask them to just lay there calmly for you. So we put them under general anesthesia, and which, which is actually commonly done with small animals as well, dogs and cats. You put them under general anesthesia to get the images that you need. And so when I was an intern at the Mammal Center, there was a big study going on with Long Marine Lab. Colleen Reekmith and Peter Cook were working on a study to figure out the memory component, because now we know that their memory's altered. And it's, so basically... The study was I had to, as a clinician, pick which animals I thought were chronic demoic acid versus normal. He'd take the animal down to Long Marine Lab, do a blinded maze. So he had this whole structure where the animal wouldn't imprint on him. He'd be able to teach him the maze and throw fish like from behind a blind to basically positive reinforce them that, yes, we want you to go through the front and then pick a door to the right or to the left. And so he'd do a pattern to try to get them to learn it. And the ones that had a normal brain would be able to learn the pattern pretty routinely. But when they had altered hippocampal and they had damage to it, they wouldn't learn it and they wouldn't remember the way. So the way we found out, do they have damage or not, is I would then meet Peter after two weeks of testing animals. I'd meet him at Animal Scan in Redwood City and we put the animal under general anesthesia and get the MRI image and that would kind of complete his part of the study. So I had a lot of experience doing MRIs on wild sea lions as an intern, and it was in a really set up veterinary suite, basically. So they, they were meant to do dogs and cats. They allowed us to do sea lions. So I definitely figured out a technique I like there. I realized the, the, the big value in MRI, and I, and I really enjoyed that research part. So MRIs are gold standard. There has been a lot of research, and there still will be, about how can we diagnose this without an MRI, the chronic damage. And we definitely try to study using EEG electroencephalogram where you put these little electrodes in, it's like a tiny needle into their skin, but they have to be kind of sedated for that. You know, an awake mad sea lion is not gonna let you put electrodes, you know, 30 electrodes in their skull. So working on that sedation technique to get good readings with it, it's just not what we hoped it would be. It's very tricky to do those EEGs, so that wasn't that great. The best way we found to, to kind of diagnose if they are chronics is if they 
sees past the protocol of phenobarbital. So phenobarbital is a medicine that's used to help prevent seizures. And so it's given as an injection to these guys daily, and it's kind of a tapering dose over two weeks. The idea is this is a water-soluble toxin. Of course, they're going to be, you know, seizuring in that short term. But if we can treat them, get them through that short term, then hypothetically, they shouldn't seizure after that little treatment regime. If they do have a seizure past it, I mean, these guys will look totally normal, eating great, and then boom, have a seizure after it. Those guys should be euthanized. That's the best thing to do for the wild population, you know, their population's doing fine. It's best to try to get the ones out that can't contribute like the others can. But it can be difficult, right? Because you're still, it's still euthanasia. It's a big thing. So what does a seizing sea lion actually look like? Can you paint us a picture of that? Yeah, it's probably as scary as you think. When they have the seizure, it'll be lose consciousness, flap around in the water or on land. There's all flippers moving. It usually is less than a minute and then stops. We'll use a medicine called lorazepam. It's related to Valium and it's absorbed really well intramuscularly. And so that's something that can just help stop that seizure right then. But it'll look pretty scary and dramatic. A lot of them, because they have that toxin going on, maybe they're just post-ictal, meaning after the seizure. A lot of them will just be kind of out of it. They'll do some head weaving. That's kind of the classic. You'll see them there like eyes closed, head weaving around, you know, and they're not really responding so well to you. The Mammal Center actually worked on a grading score for them where you can score and see where they're at based on do they react when you approach them? Do they react when you lightly touch their flipper with a crowding board? That kind of thing, because they really won't in that first bit of time, you know, days after they were exposed. So earlier I interrupted you talking about the pups exposed neonatally that the Stranding Center sent to zoos and aquariums. Let's go back to that. Yeah. So with the adults, we know what happens. With the pups, all we know so far is that there was a retrospective study that Claire Simeon did last year, looking at all the animals that were placed from the stranding network. And I believe 25% of them were neonatal animals that needed to be hand raised. And of that 17% of them had mortality so far. So, you know, there's a big misconception that all of these neonatal sea lions that were placed all died. That's not really what happened. It's more, some of them had issues. And is there any way we can, well, I mean, first of all, figure out what the issue is. Can we do anything to help them? Because as it is right now, they're all getting euthanized with the stranding network. When neonatal pups come in all along the West Coast, everybody's told to euthanize them. Is that because there's currently no placements for them at zoological facilities? That's part of it. That's part of it, or at least this conception that nobody wants them. And that's what I want to try to figure out a way where we can still place some of them, but then have a better way of collecting data on them as they age so that we can help figure out what's going on with them that's causing these problems later in life. And is there any way we can medicate them or do a treatment to try to have them live longer lives. I think part of it is the expectation, you know, when when these facilities adopted these animals, they expected them to be like a normal sea lion that would live into their 30s. And so when they die, of course, that's heartbreaking. And who would want to go, you know, try out another animal like that? But maybe if it's set up a little differently with expectation, this may be a little bit of a difficult animal, but you can help figure out what's going on with the big picture. Would you be willing to be a part of that? I mean, that's what we're going to move into with the developmental domoic acid 
kind of research. So, you know, I kind of knew all this was going on. So when I was an intern, we did have a little baby come in, but she ended up having to be in a bottle and she was my little baby. <laughs> you know, I have to like, well, it was just that whole experience of bottle raising a pup. And it, it's different than when you're a vet at, at a big facility because you have your husbandry staff that does that. It's not what the veterinarian does. So it was this whole other kind of perspective I got to get. And so I got her to wean. I got her, we got her a new home. What's tricky too with the straining network is that you don't get to choose where that animal goes. National Marine Fisheries Service is in charge of all of these animals that are wild and, and where they go. And so there's a list of facilities that are interested in acquiring these animals. And so they basically have to go down this list and you have your place in the list. They can't like go away from this list. So the animal got placed at a zoo where there was one other sea lion. She was like 18 years old, had been alone for a couple years. They were asking a lot of questions that made me believe that they weren't sure how to introduce this young pup to this adult female, which is fine. You know, they'll figure that out. What was disappointing was like, so the animal was there maybe for a month and then she just dropped dead. And oh, no. I know it was, of course, heartbreaking. That's just that she died. And I, you know, we put in all this care and we really cared about this animal, but her body got sent to a domestic animal pathologist who isn't well-versed in sea lions and, and samples to take like the hippocampus and other brain samples we may want to see. So we weren't able to get much data on her and it wasn't really shared with us in a way where we could have used that information to help out with future animals. So I learned a lot from that, I guess, and I wanted to, to do more to figure out how, at least how, how can we all share data? What is going on with these pups? As I was at Six Flags and... We were at, I was actually at a walrus conference and there was another, a woman there, actually Shelly Ballman from Oceans of Fun. And she had an animal from the straining network and just had dropped dead. And it came up with this whole, you know, the questions got brought up again. What is going on with these pups? How can we figure it out? And so I started to talk with Francis Gulland again about getting a, a project going. And so my hope was to kind of use the, the Six Flags facility maybe to have animals there. But in the end, it's a big project, right? And, and I think what needs to happen is that we need the community and the, the zoos and aquariums to kind of come together to help us figure this out. Because, you know, it's hard to find one facility that would take, let's say, five animals that were exposed and help us do all this follow-up. And so we're trying to think about a paradigm shift. So instead of it being like just at Long Marine Lab with five animals, maybe we can have the animals at, at the mammal center for like six, eight months, and then they can get placed in a facility that would be willing to do MRIs and follow up with blood work and that kind of thing so that we can continue to figure things out. And there are a lot of really interesting behavioral tests that can be done too, because now we know what happens with adults, but we can do some of these tests on the these young guys, like memory tests to see what, what changes. A lot of it's going to be these MRIs. So there's a lot, there's a lot to learn. Is domoic acid a problem every year? I know there's been these unusual mortality events back in 1990s. And I, there was another one a couple of years ago. Oh yeah. Yeah. With the yearlings. Yeah. So is this a annual trend? That's a problem where you have a couple it's so great you brought this up because it seems like with the oceans warming, the blooms of these 
little organisms, the diatoms that are creating the toxin, they're becoming more frequent. So there's certainly large groups of animals that get exposed every year. It's a constant thing and it kind of changes when there may be a spike or not. Maybe not on the level of unusual mortality event like it was in 98, but definitely they come in. I think it's seen a little more down in um, Southern California because it's closer to the Channel Islands. So there's islands off the coast of California where the sea lions, they have most of their rookeries or that's the space where they have their babies and then breed and so they'll see more of these cases down here these stranded neonates either either they're just found without the mom or they come up a little younger before weaning so it does it does keep happening gotcha so this protocol that you established now is essentially going to be the framework for this future study you're hoping to do yeah exactly okay exactly And so this MRI paper was basically the first of many papers because we needed one to kind of establish the protocol for doing an MRI with sea lions because that hadn't been done yet. I got really lucky. I met through Peter Cook. I met a gentleman named Ben Inglis. He's a PhD at UC Berkeley who runs the MRI research lab. There's costs associated with these, right? And, And there's not for research, you know, it's, it can be so challenging to find the right funds to get what you need done. And so we're always trying to find ways to get free research in a way. And so Ben was just, he, he had only done a human studies mostly. He did one with dogs where dogs can learn to go into this MRI. I mean, they got trained to go and sit. So he knew that animals could be put in the scanner. And so when I met him, he was more than willing to scan animals for free. The limitation was he didn't have an anesthesia machine. And so, you know, at Animal Scan, they had their own anesthesia machine. It was a no-brainer. So I had this scenario where I had to figure out how to have an MRI-compatible machine. So what we talked about, right, it's a big magnet. You can't have any metal in that room. And they go through and they have a scanner that checks you before you go in because if any metal sticks to that magnet, it costs a ton of money to quench the magnet, meaning release that metal. And so it's always something that you're worried about in there. So you can't just take a regular portable anesthesia machine with an oxygen cylinder into this room because, you know, we'll cause an explosion. Nobody wants that. So I knew I had a really basic anesthesia machine and I talked with an anesthesiologist to figure out how I could modify it in a way where I could use it at this facility. And so what we ended up doing was keeping the metal parts, the vaporizer, the oxygen cylinder outside of the MRI room. And then we had a long tubing essentially going from the outside of the room into a small plastic circle unit to the animal. So your so your your bag to give them breast is in the room on this plastic part. We had to keep the flow rate higher because you have that long line and just making sure we got enough oxygen and isofluorine gas to the animal. And it, it worked out really well. I was a little nervous the first time, but um you know it worked out well. The other part is the anesthetic monitoring. In a perfect world, your pulse oximeter works. So that's what's showing you your percentage of oxygen in the animal's blood. You're seeing a heart rate. In a sea line, it's great to have end tidal CO2 in a perfect world. So seeing your carbon dioxide, because they can have much higher levels normally than a dog or a cat, but you really want to watch trends. So in a perfect world, we have all that. I got trained by Bill Van Bonn. Bill Van Bonn is very much into the animal breathing on their own and taking their own voluntary breaths and not 
using a ventilator primarily. And so that's how I got comfortable doing anesthesia and that's how he learned it. And so I felt okay not having a ventilator. A lot of it was watching the character of the breath. The cool part about sea lions is because of their diving adaptations, you can see their heartbeat throughout their whole body, essentially. And so I, I preferred them on their back because then you could see their heartbeat even better. The MRI can also be very loud. And so when you're in there relying on just listening, it can be extra challenging. And so I had a dedicated technician in there who would watch, give breaths every two minutes and be sure to tell me if the respiratory rate or character changed at all. So it's a lot of checking in, leaving the room, you know, lots of, lots of that stuff. It's, a, it's pretty intense. And then the MRIs can get, you should just have it in your head, it's gonna get hot. It's interesting because they keep the room really well air conditioned to keep the temp down, but inside the magnet, it's hot. And sea lines, more than anything, they can get hyperthermic super easily. So I just always would have ice on their flippers no matter what, even before they went in, just preemptively. And, and I thankfully never, never had an issue there. But I know some other people have before, have had an animal get too hot in, a, in an MRI. How long are they in the machines for? Well, that was the other thing I negotiated with Ben. I was like, all right, this can't be two hours. I want it less than an hour. You know, if you can, 30 minutes, that'd be great. And so part of what we kept working on was him getting the computer programs down to the smallest amount of time possible. And I think he talks about in the paper, I believe it was like 30 minutes he got it down to. So it, it was really a great experience working with Ben. We ended up using sea lines from the Mammal Center. So Cara Field over there, she, she'd let me know if they had anything neurologic because they'd have to pay to go to Animal Scan to get scanned. So this was a way to get free MRIs of the sea lions and then a way where we could work on our technique. And so I go and pick up sea lions and bring them over to Berkeley and we'd scan them and bring them back to the mammal center. So I think, I think we ended up with about nine totals. And when you say you picked up the sea lions, I assume they aren't sitting in the passenger seat next to you. Uh, yeah, we could talk about that. So sea lions do great in dog carriers. There's definitely an ideal size because I believe his table could hold maybe 150 pounds. So you got to consider your, ta your table that's going into the MRI. So, you know, trying to get an adult male sea lion that maybe weighs 250 pounds, that's not really going to work. You know, adult females may even be pushing it sometimes. So the animals that were ideal for me were more like, you know, 50 pounds yearling, yearling size. And so that's a lot of what we ended up using. So they'd fit in a pretty much a large dog crate. You talked about where the study is going. Do you see facilities jumping on with this in the next like year or two, or do you see this more as a long-term project? I really hope we can get this all organized in the next two years and start getting animal. I mean, even by this summer, that might be a lot <laughs> given the circumstances here, but that's kind of the next phase, I guess, right now is talking with the pinniped tag person, Eric Aglione, and um, getting some awareness that we're, we're wanting facilities to be a part of the study and kind of organizing it all kind of with CAR at the Mammal Center in Francisco. And I know things are just challenging with COVID. I try to remind myself of that. A lot of things are on a standstill right now. So it's a good time to organize study design and all that. And maybe even just see what can be learned from the deceased animals, the deceased pups too. And looking into their brains, like maybe we can look at the for glutamate receptors there, that kind of a thing. So there'll be a lot of pieces to this, but I mean, that's going to be the big picture is getting, um, getting some buy-in from zoos and aquariums that would be willing to take on one or two of these 
these little sea lions that we know were exposed. But I think it could be a really good message for guests coming to visit and all that. It's just, I understand it's a lot bringing on an animal that you know may end up being an epileptic or have seizures. Yeah, the practicality of it might be difficult, but like you're just saying the message and being able to have these conversations with guests. I know that's something I really care a lot about right now is how are we communicating our science with the general public? Because a study like this, right? Like this is really important. There are so many animals that are dying every year because of this. And you just see them on the beach and it's like, oh, they're just another sea lion. But to hear the story behind it and realize, wow, like this is our natural environment causing behavioral changes in these animals and we can do something about it. Like that's cool. And they're a great natural model for epilepsy instead of, you know, using mice and these other models where we're giving them the toxin. I mean, they're just this great subject right there. Yeah. Why have to infect an animal to deal with that when you have these model animals that you can actually, rather than infect, you can actually try to save them. That's amazing. Yeah. So just getting that awareness. Yeah. Well, Vanessa, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, you're welcome. It's been great. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Aquadox. I'd like to thank Dr. Vanessa Fravel Horde for being on the show this week, as well as thank all of you, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in. As always, check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest Aquadox news. And if you've got an extra minute, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps a lot. I'm Michelle Greenfield. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you next time here on Aquadox.